So love to see Michaela up here been playing the fiddle. I said we got a great fiddle player. Of course it's Yeah. I love to see the youth alongside the uh, adults to show that you know the church isn't just one group of uh, age group or something. You know, I love to see that. So it's good. It also kind of proves a point. Small things can have a big effect. Um you know that uh, I, I found out recently that just uh, most, almost every music is, is set together by eight different chords, eight different notes to some extent. Uh, most music from symphonies to, to what we just heard, and yet it can have such a profound, huge effect on us. Um, the pr- most profound books, uh, the, the Constitution <laughs> that governs our life to some extent, uh, is set together by 26 words or 26 letters. In an alphabet, small things create big, big effects. Um, think, think of the phrase "I do." <laughs> it has a big effect. <laughs> Many of you have been affected by that, you know, two little words "I do." Some of you hope to be affected. You run into a lot of single people. I want to say "I do" with the right person. But also, how about the aspect of "I don't"? There's "I love you" and then there's "I hate you." Very simple words, right? Very small, but can have huge, dramatic effects. I think of patient zero just a year ago, a two-year-old, that, that from that two-year-old in December, they've pinpointed over 12,000 people died of Ebola in Africa. That one single two-year-old. It's sad, but that one small person, that, that patient zero, can affect lives. And right now, I mean, the, 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 what they're feeling in Africa, they have all these orphans. And nobody will take them in because they're an anathema. They, they, they're considered a pariahs. Uh, uh, people won't touch them because they might still be sick, even though they're not. Such a huge effect that's going to forever change. I mean, look what 9-11 did. Such a small thing, really, when you think about it. I mean, one life is terrible, but 3,000 lives, and yet look what it's done in, 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 in effect what the terrorists did to America. I, I think of the, a dense fog, <laughs> a mile by mile. I talked about this one time, and I, I just remember this. It's great to understand this, but, you know, you ever been stuck in a fog, literally, up in the mountains or somewhere? And, I mean, you're just like, wow, this is so thick, I can't even see. You could break that down to less than two gallons of water. And it, yet it's so big, it's so vast, so small, really, when you think about it. This is the truth of small things. What I love about our series that we've been talking about, Kingdom Come. We've been looking at very simple principles. Very simple principles of the idea of the kingdom that Jesus laid out. And yet in these principles, we have the practices and how they apply. See, we don't just say, principally speaking, we're about an intergenerational church. We don't just say that. We put it into practice. I love the fact, I mean, I, I was like, I felt so inadequate being up here er, er, earlier, you know, speaking out of uh, the book of Philippians and reading that when we had uh, uh, Becca, I believe it was Becca, last week, who, who gave the, the scripture reading. And she did such a better job than I'd ever do because she did it from heart, from memory. And it was great. See, that's the practice. You can say you believe in it. You, you can say you're about intercultural ministries. But then you can actually be about intercultural, intergenerational. So we want to have that. And that's the idea of the kingdom come. The idea of the principles and the practices. 
What Jesus says, this is what my kingdom looks like, and this is what it is in practice. We were just talking uh, recently, I'm going to bring this in, but uh, um, Brian and I were speaking about one of our favorite authors, uh, which is Francis Schaeffer. Uh, one of the one of the uh, that coined the idea really uh, of a futurist that idea of looking into the future using what we know of in the past and just in theology and philosophy and understanding hist- history and culture and art and all that genius of a man i mean he wrote books upon books upon books very content could have just sat in his high ivory tower stroking his beard he had a, he had an awesome goatee you know one of those where you see a professor he used to wear knickers you know, in the long socks. I mean, one of those guys, you're just like, oh my gosh, right? If anybody, you're like, this guy's a genius, just by the way he looks, right? Try reading his books. Very, very difficult. But he actually lived it. He saw the principles. He, he acknowledged the principles of the kingdom. But then he said, okay, family, we're going to live it. God says he'll take care of us. And it's easy to write about that, to wax eloquent on that. It's another thing, wholly another thing, to quit everything and go seek God and say, okay, God, you need to provide for me. I don't have enough money to pay my bills. Will you do that? Bring whatever you need to do. And he did it and he showed it and he lived it. Awesome stuff. We, that's what we want to look at. And so as we look at today, this, the, the parable I want to illuminate for you is, is right out of um, Matthew 16. Uh, and I feel like it's just, it's awesome. Because what it does is it takes this concept of the small things. And it it shows the massive effect. And so what I'd like to do is just give you our take-home truth for today. If you walk out here with this, I think you'll you'll really get something um, that God is saying in the kingdom come. Kingdom come means small things can have massive effects. See, kingdom come means that that small things can have massive effects. See, this is is Jesus. I mean, really, when you think about it, this is Jesus. Because, see, we we have hindsight, right? Hindsight's 20-20. We, we've Monday night quarterbacked this whole idea of Jesus so much so, right? Like, we, we get it. We're like, man, Jesus, Jesus, if I could only have been there, Jesus, right? But try to put yourself, and one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, does this in the Jesus I Never Knew. He does this. He tries to put himself in the time when Jesus was really there walking around. And I think it's interesting because we, we have so many ideas of Jesus, <laughs> but we forget that the Jews were expecting this massive God response to the oppression and the pain and the suffering that they had gone through. Hundreds of years, hundreds of years, not just a couple of years. Some of you have suffered, and I get it, and, and, and there's been times where I've suffered. Could you imagine, it's not just you, but it's your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents going through oppression, suffering. And that's what the Jews did. And so they looked at these, these verses in the book of Ezekiel that talked about how God was going to come and stop the pain and the suffering and bring this, this Messiah that would like crush under the heel, under his heel, the oppressor. And yet every year they saw Rome getting stronger and stronger and stronger. They saw Rome becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're like, where's the Messiah? And eventually they hear rumors. There's a Messiah born. There's a Messiah among us. Right? I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, but let's, let's just put Jesus' life into a quick perspective here. Instead of, of 
Jesus being born to big fanfare and a huge procession and like a, like a, like a Hunger Games type chariot thing where it comes out and everyone's like, oh, at the Capitol, you know, doing their thing and, and oh, it's Jesus. Yes, right there. Yes, it's G-, you know, all that. It's amazing. He's born to a teenage girl who God doesn't make privy the knowledge that it's actually him that impregnated her through the power of the Holy Spirit until later because he was going to divorce her. He's like, I'm not even married yet and she's pregnant. Something's not up. You know what I mean? Something's wrong here. And, and God only fills in him in a little bit later, tells Anna, an old widow, Simeon, an old dude at the temple, a couple of degenerate shepherds, some uh, strangers from another land who barely speak Hebrew or Aramaic probably, who come in known as wise men, right? He doesn't tell everybody. He just shows a little couple people. Uh, Elizabeth, her cousin, you know, there's not this huge fanfare. And, and, he, and they're poor, by the way. And, and, and when he's born, he's born in a manger, which really is a safe way of saying in the first world, like a cave full of animal poop. Like, really? The king of kings, the lord of lords, came into a small cave full of nasty, smelly animals because there was no room in the big old inn. Then they have to flee the country and go live as refugees, aliens, strangers in Egypt just to stay alive for how many years they're there. Not even in the country that he's supposed to be a part of, right? He's in another country. He's in a strange land. And then this is what kills me. For 19 years, he's a laborer. He's just a mason. Working with rock and, and, and wood and stone and doing what his dad did. He didn't go into hardcore synagogue school, which the good Jewish boys would go into because they knew everything. He probably had to provide for mom because what we say is, you know, from theology, we look at this and uh, from understanding the, the culture back then, we, he, dad probably died. Joseph probably died. So he had to pay, you know, he, as the oldest son, he had to, he had to pay the bills. 19 years. And then he goes into ministry. For only three years. Three years. I mean, think about that. It's so small when you think about it, right? And yet those three years changed the world. He picks a few people, changed the world. And they're not like big-minded people. If you know anything about the disciples, you're like, I'm a little smarter than they are. And you'd probably be right. They're not like the best and the brightest. I love what Isaiah 53 says. I just want to point you to this really quick. Because there's such a contradictory understanding of, of Jesus sometimes. But it says this in Isaiah. As Isaiah is talking about the future Messiah, he says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up. Okay, so this Messiah, he grows up before us like a tender shoot, like, and like a root out of dry ground. It's not really a pretty understanding here. It's like a weed. He had no beauty. He had no majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his physical appearance that made any sense to us. You, you didn't look at him and go, oh, it's the Messiah. How do you know? And look at his eyes. Right? You can't do that. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This is so contradictory. I just want to show you a couple Jesuses really quick. Okay? These are the Jesus that we see. Here, here's the traditional Jesus, right? I don't know about you, but I kind of look at the traditional Jesus and I'm like, yeah, that's a Messiah. I mean, if a guy was walking down the street looking like that, it'd be like, something's up about that guy, right? 
I just want to have a flannel graph of him. Can we put a sheep on him? Maybe a small child, right? That's the idea here, okay? So next Jesus. What do we got here? We got the, we got the handsome Jesus. This, this is the handsome Jesus, right? You're just like, dang! If only we could be as handsome as that Jesus. I mean, look at that hair. I mean, I didn't know they had such byproducts for, you know, the, the products of the shampoo back then, but tch, telling you, that guy is awesome. Okay, how about the westernized Jesus here? This is the western, or hipster Jesus. This is the hipster Jesus. Now, you can see we're getting a little silly here, right? But this is, you know, this is the hipster Jesus, right? Right? Okay, how about, how about the next one? What do we got here? Oh, okay, that's the, that's the, I'm cool with it Jesus, right? Some of you guys know this Jesus. He's just cool with it. What do you want to do? He's cool. Jesus is cool with it. I mean, we have all these ideas of Jesus, right? But what's interesting is, if you, if you kind of go back, and we can kind of do this now, through DNA and different things, not that we have Jesus' DNA or anything like that, don't get all excited, because um, he's alive, he's not dead, we don't have to recreate him. Um, but what we have here is almost like a, this is probably what he looked like back, back then. If we show that next one of it, yeah. Um, so, I don't know about you, but not, not very spectacular, Right? Like, this wouldn't sell a lot of movie tickets if we had the Bible rendition and this was Jesus. Right? I I think there's another one that shows more of a a face-to-face one. Yeah. But that's more of the understanding. I mean, not handsome necessarily. Right? Nothing that you could look at and go, that is the Son of God. Can I go back to the handsome Jesus? Right? I want to go back to the handsome Jesus. That's what I want, right? Like, or, or, you know, or or I'm cool with the Jesus. But, you know, like, seriously, the real Jesus... And that's the idea. And yet, we try to make everything so much bigger than what it really is. Don't we? As if we need the handsome Jesus and we can't have the actual Jesus. The poor Jesus. The one that that had the life that he had. See, let's face it. This guy seems underwhelming and normal. Someone who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's like God uses the ordinary small things to do something extraordinary and massive and eternal. See, because he goes on to say he was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions, our sin, our brokenness, he was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. That little homely Jesus... Took it every, took everything. The King of Kings. I love it. One Savior for all mankind. We don't need two. We have one. There's no Plan B. There's only one. Plan A. Massive, massive eternal effects. And this is the idea of this next parable. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read it very quickly for you. So if you can stand up. I think I said Matthew 16. It's Matthew Matthew 13. So I apologize uh, for that. But stand on up, and we're going to read out of the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Verses 31 through 33. Just two small verses. It fits in, right? Small verses for small things. He told them another parable. It says, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom come, the kingdom of heaven 
is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay, you may be seated. I told you it was small. But so here's some principles here that I really want us to look at because what we're looking at is the idea of, again, God takes those small things and does massive extraordinary, eternal things. So that first principle is simple. Kingdom come means God uses the small to shine his love and truth into the world. See, though it is the smallest of all seeds, Jesus says, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. See, the simple fact is we're all like a mustard seed. I mean, it's interesting because most people feel, the older you get, that we are pretty insignificant. You know, I mean, we get that disease called teenagers-ism, right? When we're young, where everybody's looking at me. Everybody cares about how I dress. Everybody is looking at the pimple on my face, right? You know what I'm talking about. Teenagers get that. They're like, I can't go outside. Why? Because one shoe has got a mark on the side. Is that like, Dude, seriously, no one's going to care. And you try to tell them that, right? Like, nobody really cares that you have a little tiny pimple right here, right? But to them, everybody sees it. But see, the truth is, we get older and we realize, you know what? Honestly... This is, this is why we have such a, abysmal voting aspects. People forget that, like, your vote matters. But my vote doesn't matter. It's just one person. I'm just small. See, we are small. I, I love what David, def, David recognizes this in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 8, as he admires the massive truth of, of, of the creation and the world around him. Have you ever done that? you ever gone to, like, the Grand Canyon and just been like, wow, I am small. You know, I, I had a, 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 one of my mentors was an astrophysicist, and he would give the greatest talks on the stars and space over a campfire. And I just remember sitting and listening to him and be like, oh my gosh, who am I that God is even mindful of me? Look at the massive things. And that's what David says in Psalm 8, right? He, he says, what are we, mere mortals? that you should think about them. He's talking to God. Human beings, that you should even care for them. See, it's that idea of we're so small. We are inferior. We're broken. We're imperfect. We're limited. We blow it. Which is why it's even greater to see God Almighty partner with us and shine through us His massive love. I, I just think it's awesome. And, and I know I'm going to go into a little left field here, but, it, but it, trust me, it works. I want to show you a picture of a guy. His name is Nigel Richardson. And, and, and what's interesting about Ni- Nigel Richardson here is, or Nigel Richards, see, I even forgot his name. He doesn't look very important, right? You talk about a small guy. This guy has destroyed every record when it comes to Scrabble. I know, now you guys are like, wow, he's a, he's a, he's a star, he's a rock star, right? Scrabble. Um, <laughs> he's a Kiwi. He's a guy from New Zealand who started playing Scrabble in his 20s, okay? And, and he's won uh, five American Scrabble championships in a row. He's destroyed the Americans. He did three national, or Eng- uh, the English, the UK Scrabble championships, he destroyed them three times in a row. 
Um, and, and, and he's done three times world, so bringing everybody together. And he, this small little guy who bikes to his thing, he doesn't even stay because he's so cheap, right? He, he stays like 10, 15 miles away from, from the place they put him in because he doesn't want to pay the prices, and so he'll bike, and he doesn't even talk to anybody. He's kind of like a recluse. Interesting guy. But anyway, he, um, he just stunned the world last week. You know what he did? He won the French Scrabble Championship. He doesn't even speak French. He doesn't speak French. There's over a hundred thousand words in the French dictionary. He just memorized about a, a couple thousand. So he memorizes a couple thousand words, just small amount, goes in and destroys the French. It's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm flipping out over this. Because I think, I like Scrabble personally. But this is, this is ridiculous when you think about it. This guy, takes a small amount of the language and destroys in the tournament people who have spoke this language for their whole life. And if you're a French person right now, you're like, sacre bleu, you know, you're upset, right? You're probably saying something different, but you know, like, like it truly is. And I think we're amazed by this, at least I am, because it's so small. It's so small. A couple thousand words... I mean, it probably took him a couple months and he's just memorizing them and then he goes in and destroys. But that's the truth. It doesn't take huge things. Small things make a massive difference. God uses the small to shine his truth and love to all. See, Paul talks about this in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I love this. His analogy is very appropriate for right now. He, he says something that's, that's really interesting. Um, he says that God resides in us and we're just like jars of clay. And see, the interesting thing about jars of clay back then, you can literally just like throw a rock into a pit in the, in the Middle East and you will find an ancient clay pot. They're just everywhere. Like you dig and you're going to find clay pots all over the place because they were the paper bag or plastic bag of the day. Everybody had them. It's what you put your trash in. It's what you put your mm-hmm in. You put everything in there. You know what I'm saying? It's, it was used for everything. And, and, and Paul says, by the way, that's what God resides in. You, a plastic bag. I mean, can you imagine this unlimited, awesome power of God residing in a jar of clay or a plastic bag? Imagine the, the surgical room, if you will, right? The lights are on and you have all these surgeons around and the nurses and they're doing this with the, you know, I mean, Mark probably knows this more, right? You know, And, and they're, they're, they're sweating and it's been hours and they've opened this guy. They've got a chest cracker, right? And they've cracked his chest. I mean, brutal. They've, there's no heart in there anymore. They've ripped that heart out. And, and all of a sudden, you know, they're like, where's the heart? Who's got it? And this nurse comes in. I've got it. And it's in a Vons plastic bag. But there's ice around it, but it's dripping. Why? Because it's a freaking plastic bag. And of course there's a hole in it. And so there's dripping out like the, 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 you know, the ice moisture and the condensation. That's not right, right? You put it in the most valuable protective thing ever. No, God literally takes a Vons plastic bag and puts his glory in it, puts his heart in it. The small, the things that we look at and we go, what? Yeah, you, a Vons plastic bag or Stater Brothers, whatever your preference is, I don't care. But the point is, I mean, that, that's what we are. And he goes on to say it's like a tent, Falling apart. Tents weren't meant to last. 
You see, the truth is, God comes and says, I want to reside in you. Small little me, God? Who am I to be? Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. It's awesome. Jesus takes broken people who grew up in broken homes and shines his love through them so that their family has love shining to them now. Jesus takes addicted people and puts his heart in them. Broken and all. And drips all over the truth of who he is in the midst of our brokenness. In the midst of our tornness. Jesus takes the small things and shines in such a way that the world takes notice. Secondly, another principle is kingdom come means God uses the small to supply the world. I I love that story of the feeding of the 5,000. And and there's a number of different, uh, um, uh, in in different passages, different um, synoptic gospels, you know, you can see this. There's the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. But the the one I love is just, it's getting late, you know, and Jesus is like, his disciples come to him, because he's been teaching all day, and his disciples come to him like, hey, we're getting hungry, Jesus, you want to send these guys home? And it's not just like a couple people, there's 5,000 men recorded, so you have to kind of double that number, or triple that number if you count kids and women, right? So there's probably about 15,000 people there listening to Jesus, and it's getting late, you know, and, and again, the, the disciples are like, we're getting hungry, and I think you should send them home because they need to eat. Right? So, so Jesus just does something amazing. He looks at his, his really like small disciples and says, well, why don't you feed them? I love that. <laughs> because that's ridiculous, right? That, that's like God meeting you right outside the door and says, you know the 15,000 people in that one town? Why don't you go ahead and feed them? And you're just like, um, you know I'm an out-of-work student, right? Or you know, you know I'm like, like, have you seen my bank account, God? And that's what they do. They're like, it, it would take almost two years of wages to pay for just to feed these people. It's ridiculous. I mean, they're like, come on, God. You know how small we are? And he says, well, what do, you, what do you got? What do you got? I love that. And he's, they're like, well, we got five loaves of fish. Or five loaves of bread, sorry. It'd be weird to have a loaf of fish, right? That's a Swedish fish. But five loaves of bread and two, two fish. And, and it's almost like, yeah, you know, here you go. Ha <laughs> ha. You're funny. Jesus. Crazy, crazy Jesus. And what does he do? He says, okay. And he grabs it and he, and he blesses it. You see, Jesus wants to take the small things in your life and he wants to supply the world around you. And it says that everybody was fed. Like everyone there, over 15,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish. It's a literal physical impossibility. I mean, you'd have to cut it so small. You know what I'm saying? But it wasn't that. It says there was enough afterwards to fill 12 baskets. And typical baskets of that day held, you know, 60 gallons. Big old baskets. 12 baskets of pieces left over. It's almost like God takes the small things of this world, like you and me, and can supply the world around us. That's the truth of this parable. This is the simple fact. I mean, this is why he said you're the salt. Salt is small, right? You ever put a little too much salt? 
Some of you guys are like salt checkers. You know, you're going to make sure your salt content. Some people, I used to have kids, they would put salt on bacon. I was like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I remember my, my daughter put salt on her fried chicken. I'm like, why are you doing that? No, we had to start limiting her salt. But really, it doesn't take much salt, does it? To oversalt a meal. It only takes a little tiny bit. He says, you are the light of the world. Do you know it only takes a tiny one match or one candle to light the darkest room? You can still see. You can make your way through the darkest of caves with one match. That's the point. I've seen this, by the way, this miracle, this truth. Um, I, I had the opportunity to, to partner with a place called the Blessing Center. And we do work with the Blessing Center. And I encourage you, if you've never gone to serve there, go serve there. Um, it's awesome. And it actually started about 17 years ago in a garage. And, and it was this one guy, and he was a pastor, Pastor uh, Craig. And he just really felt God saying, you, you need to like take care of the least, the last, and the lost. You know, there, there's some homeless, but there's a lot of people who just, they need a box of food. They need help. Take care of them. And he's like, oh, I've got five loaves and two fish. It's crazy what God has done in that place. In the last 17 years, they've served millions of pounds of food. The Lord has done something. It, it, it's, it's awesome because now over 8,000 people every month are given food, medical, dental. They're getting legal services for a number of things. Homeless are getting sack lunches every day. People who are coming out of prison are getting help for employment and ministry to their lives. And that's just a few things that they provide. And every month, God pays the bills. I love it because sometimes I'll be in there and he'll be like, well, can you pray for us? Why? Well, pastor, uh, we don't have the money to keep the lights on. Because they don't make any money. I mean, they just, it's what people give. And, and, he, and he goes, but that's okay. I know if you pray, God will provide. He's always provided. Well, how do you know that? Because he just does. He said he would. He said he would supply. And, and every month, God supplies. You see, that's the truth. And God wants to supply through you. Kingdom come means God uses the small to supply the... To supply the world. Over 7 million pounds of food have been given away in the last six years just in the place they're at. 7 million pounds of food. They don't pay a dime for it. It just comes in. But they have one policy. When it comes in, we give it away. Don't keep it. Just give it away. It's called the manna, the manna principle. You know, when God rained manna on the people of Israel, he said, don't store it. Give it, you know, eat it right then and there. Don't put it in jars. Don't try to keep it for later because it'll rot and mildew. They do the same thing. If God gives them a person that can do ministry, go. Do ministry. God gives them food, give it away. Because God supplies. Lastly, God, kingdom come means God uses the small to save the world. See, so that the birds of the air can come perch in the branches. You, you have to understand here, agrarian cultures, agricultural cultures, now 90-something percent of all the people lived off the food that they, they were able to grow and make. Birds were not good. Birds are not good to an agrarian people. They didn't go outside and go, oh, the birds are so pretty. They hated birds. They didn't keep birds in cages. If they saw a bird and they could get a hands out, they would kill it. Why? Because birds were horrible to the crops. Birds were horrible to the seeds and the small plants and everything in between. That's why, you know, farmers, they put up the scarecrows and all that stuff, right? Because the birds will come and, and destroy. They're not good. In that culture. And, and, and so what's interesting is he says, 
here's a, a tree, and the birds will come and, and plant in it unclean birds. Jesus gave his life so that this unclean bird could have a place to rest. You see, Jesus the small became the sacrifice for all so that we could be saved. And I'll tell you, I'm one unclean bird who's so grateful that I have Jesus at the cross that I can nest in. Jesus wants to save. Will you partner with him? Because these are the practices. I just want to give these really quick and we're done. Uh, uh, The practices are simple. Where can you shine? Believe it or not, God wants to use the small to affect the big. See, for some of you, when the family gets together, instead of hugs, it's fists. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, Words are more poisonous than pretty. Uncle so-and-so and cousin such-and-such, they're at it again and I'm done with this. And To be quite honest, it's a ton of darkness when it comes to the family, so how can I be used here simply? You can be the plastic bag that shines through the love of Jesus. And some of you, work is not easy. It's not a carefree environment. There's gossiping, backbiting, pettiness, or jealousy, maybe stress or strain. Like you've never heard it before, a cutthroat atmosphere. It's just not healthy. Yes, God wants to use you there. He wants to partner with you there. But, but what can I do? Nothing. That's the beauty of it. You're just an unclean bird in a tree. But God wants to shine through you. Where can you shine? Where? That's that question. Where? God wants you to shine in the midst of the darkness. I love it. When I worked up in the mountain, one thing about the mountain is it gets dark early. Anybody of you ever had a cabin or or, or went up to the mountain? And you know, it's like, in the winter especially, it's like, uh, is it 9 o'clock? Oh no, it's just 3.30 in the afternoon. And it's dark. Because, you know, the mountains are there. You're like, oh, that's what they do. They block the sun too. I forgot about that. So, you know, it gets really dark. And and where we were at, in our church, before the church really started to grow, they didn't have all the... um, the stuff around with the lights and all the you know high intensity discharge lamps and everything, so it was dark. There, there, you had the stars, that was it, and sometimes a full moon, and that would make it a little brighter. So it was really dark out there, and I had all these kids that I was taking care of, right, as a youth pastor, and I didn't want a coyote to drag away a sixth grader. You know what I mean? Well, some I did. Sometimes I did. <laughs> Lord, can you take that sixth grader? No, I, I, I did say that. But so I went to the place that I love the most, which is kind of my mecca, which is Costco. And, um, <laughs> say that jokingly, uh, I, I love Costco, and I went there, and they had this light called the Cyclops. Oh, the Cyclops. It was awesome. It used a motorcycle battery in it. Dude, this thing was powerful. It was only like that big. 15 million candle watts. Oh, dude, I would go up to people, like kids, because that's just who I am. I'm sorry, I wasn't a safe pastor. I'd go up to kids and say, close your eyes. And I'd turn it on and they'd be like standing right there and they'd be like, oh, it burns even through my eyelids. And I'd be like, yes! It was awesome. It was great. It was so cool. It was the Cyclops. But I could shine it, you know, and I brought it to Mexico once. when We went to Ensenada and did ministry there and I would shine it and everybody would look up. It was great. There was like 2,000 people there, you know, in the band and stuff. And I'd be like, woo! And I'd turn on the Cyclops and everybody would be like, Where did that beam come from, right? Little old me, little old Cyclops. 
that's the idea. You, you can be the cyclops to some extent. God has given you the power to shine. It's Him through you. That is awesome. In the darkest of areas. Where? Go to the dark. The problem is most of the time Christians love to shine in the middle of the daytime. They want to go to the Christian places and do all the Christian things and they forget that there's a darkness that we need to be in so that we can shine there. Because it's, it, you don't see it in the day, but you definitely see it in the night. You definitely see it in the night. God wants to send you where? I don't know. I'm not God, but He's telling you. And maybe it is in your family. Maybe it is in your job. Maybe it's with that homeless person out, out, out in front of your house or out in front of your place of work. But God wants to send you. Where? Ask Him. What? See, what can you supply? There are people all around you that are in need. They need a sack lunch. Maybe a literal sack lunch. It's so easy to make a lunch. You make one, make another. That's one lunch you can give away. Maybe they need a listening ear. Maybe they need a ride to work. Or just someone to sit and listen to them and talk with them as they die. One of the saddest things I know of is there are so many convalescent hospitals around us where people are sitting and dying and nobody goes to them. Nobody. That's a shame. That's a shame. If every church would just adopt a convalescent hospital, there would be no dying older people that are all alone. Nobody. No, no None. They would have somebody who's coming there, who's reading to them, who's talking with them, who's playing canasta with them. I mean, it's simple. It's not hard. I, I have the privilege to go once a month, and I, I was just talking to Liz, who, who helps out with over 14 convalescent hospitals, and they go the, the first and the third Saturdays of the month, and I, I get to go once a month, but I was telling her, I'd like to go more. These people don't get to go to church. They're shut in. They don't get to go outside unless they can somehow get out with their wheelchair and at least look at the sun. They're stuck. If there's anybody in prison, it's them. And they see their friends dying next to them. Uh, this just makes sense to me. What can you supply? Not much. But believe me, God will fill in the rest. Though it'll be an eternal, awesome, awesome reward. He'll fill baskets with your little bit. Who can you save? Now please understand me here. I don't mean that we're called to save people. I know this sounds contradictory, but it's easy for people to, understand, to get it this way. Like, I'm called to save my friends, or I'm called to save... The... No. You can't save anyone just as much as the disciples couldn't make a lunch that fed thousands themselves. They had no money to do it. But God wants to partner with you and save those around you. Who? A lot of times we get this idea, you know, you know the biggest thing that this calls for? And it's the most simple, but let me tell you, this is what you do. Because if there's any way you can understand a who, it's, it's prayer. It's as simple as prayer. And that doesn't mean you pray for everybody. If you've got the time, great. But most of you don't. But you know what? You can pray for one. You can pray for two. I'm trying to pray every day. Why? Because there's a who that I'm always talking to. There are people that I meet when I go out into the community. I want to know them. Why? So I can pray for them. Because God can save them. God can change their life. God can do something in their brokenness. He makes beautiful things, amen? Out of the dust, out of the death, out of the destruction. God can do it. 
I can't, but He can. And if I just lift them up, stand in the gap. I mean, he's, Jesus said it. He said, if you ask of anything in my name and in His will, you ask it, it will be done. Are we asking? Do we care? See, this is the practice. Right now, I mean, I've been, I mean, I've got three daughters. You betcha I'm praying for the who that they'll marry. (laughs) I've been praying for them. And I pray for those future husbands. I pray for the future wife of my son. I'm going to be having a grandkid soon. I know, you're like, what? You're so young. Thank you, I appreciate that. (laughs) You know, we have an adopted daughter that is going to be having a baby soon. And I'm praying for that baby. We have a kid that we were unable to get. Because the mom said no. I pray for that kid. I pray for my neighbors. I'm sorry, I'm a big baby. (laughs) I pray for you guys when you're sick. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Pray. It's small, but it's huge. Let's pray. Lord, you take small things and make massive, eternal things out of it. Lord, we all have a who that we need to be praying for. Lord, we all have a what that we can give. And we all have a where that we can go. I pray that we would just we would just listen to you because if there's anyone that cares about broken people it's you if there's anyone that cares for the least it's you if there's anyone who cares for the lost it's you so Lord we we come before you and we say your will be done in our life. Your kingdom come. Help our tomorrows to be different because you have affected our today with your love and your truth. Thank you. We want to rejoice in the fact that you make beautiful things out of us. You have made us more than conquerors. These plastic bags there's anybody here that does not really know you in that way, Lord, that doesn't know that they're so infinitely worth it, I pray, God, that they would would just pray simply, Lord Jesus, I need you, I want you in my life, and I want to follow you, and I want to walk with you, and I want to shine like stars in the heavens. We just want to call the ushers on forward right now, and as we give our tithe we pray Lord if if there's new people here that they wouldn't feel obligated to give and I just want to echo that if if you're a a first timer and you're not a part of our church family yet don't feel like you have to give anything we've just set aside this time as a church family where we take what little we have the five loaves the two fish 
we try to supply through the power of God to the least, the last, and the lost outside of our walls as well as inside. So we thank you for this and we just pray that you would multiply it to take care of the needs of those around. We give this time to you in Jesus' name.